going to share a little bit from Dogen Zenji, who was a very deep Zen master of this lineage. And this is from Body and Mind Study of the Way, an essay called Shinjin Gakudo. Dogen Zenji said, Now mountains, rivers, earth, the sun, the moon, and stars are heart. I'm using the word heart instead of mind because the word that's being translated is heart-mind, but Westerners tend to think of mind as something that their brain does. And he's talking about a deeper mind than that. Now mountains, rivers, earth, the sun, the moon, and stars are heart. At just this moment, what is it that appears directly in front of you? When we say mountains, rivers, and earth, we do not mean merely the mountains, rivers, and earth where you are standing. There are various kinds of mountains, such as great Sumeru and small Sumeru. And uh, Sumeru is a mythical mountain of immeasurable proportions. There are various kinds of mountains. Some mountains extend widely, some rise up steeply. A billion worlds and innumerable lands can be found in a mountain. There are mountains suspended in form. There are mountains suspended in emptiness. There are also many kinds of waters, heavenly rivers, earthly rivers, the four great rivers. There are oceans and there are pools. Earth is not necessarily ground. And ground is not necessarily earth. There's earth ground, there is mind ground, or in how I've been translating this, there's heart ground. There's earth ground, there's heart ground, there's treasure ground. Although the varieties are innumerable, it is not that there is no earth, but invariably there is a world where emptiness is earth. The sun, moon, and stars, as seen by humans and by divine beings, are not the same. And the views of various beings differ widely. Views about the one heart differ as well, yet these views are nothing but heart. Heart, is it inside or outside? Does it come or go? Is there more of it at birth or not? Is there less of it at death or not? How do we understand our birth and death and views of birth and death? All this is merely a moment or two of heart. A moment or two of heart is a moment of mountains, rivers, and earth, or two moments of mountains, rivers, and earth. Because mountains, rivers, earth, and so forth neither exist nor do not exist, they're not large or small, not attainable or unattainable, not knowable or unknowable not penetrable or impenetrable. They neither change with our awakening nor change without awakening. Just wholeheartedly accept and trust that to study the way with heart is this mountains, rivers, and earth heart itself thoroughly engaged in studying the way, not to. 
this trust and acceptance is neither large nor small. It's neither existing nor does it not exist. To practice and studying in this manner, understanding that home is not home, abandoning home and entering the homeless life, this is not measurable as large or small, near or far. So he was addressing monastics, but the deeper way to think of home is the false sense of security. Security, that thing that we grasp for, which actually never exists. To study in this manner, understanding that home is no home, abandoning home, entering the insecure life, this is not measurable as large or small, near or far. Near or far. It is beyond beginning or end, beyond ascending or descending. Immediately responsive, it benefits the self and others. All this is nothing but the practice of the way. So I thought to organize the talks around pairs of polarities and opposites or dualities that are central to Zen practice. We could say that true nature is flexibility because unstuck to views, unstuck to thingness and substance, unstuck to dogma. True nature is unstuck to the dogma that there is or there isn't true nature. We could also say for ordinary mind, the moment is mostly dogma. For example, what the word face refers to is so rarely seen because the concept blocks the vivid reality. Same with tree. Same with zendo. The moment is mostly dogma because we encounter mind. Dogen Zenji also has a very nice phrase. He says that our situation at, um, human, as human beings is we're like people that look at the sky through a bamboo tube. And perhaps the first step in practice is to recognize and except that we look at our lives through a bamboo tube. And the primal dogma, the primal dogma that is the buffer between me and a free experience of life is the dogma of I am and I am not. Self-image, identity, that which filters, obscures. So true nature, the flexibility allows the taking up and the putting down with fluidity various stances towards life. There's the possibility of engaging with teachings non-dogmatically.
of approaching practice in a particular way instead of that becoming a cult of we only do it like this because so-and-so said it's like this. There's a deep flexibility knowing that the moment is lively. The person is lively. The situation is lively. One of the names for the training at Harada Roshi's place is Khufu, creative functioning. Deep flexibility. So the polarities are something we, we dance in, or you could say we dance as. We see through them, and we see through them. Both are important. They remain dualities that actually create a sense of bondage when we don't see through them, but we only see through them. So today I'll talk about conviction and not knowing. A polarity very easy to lose one's freedom in. And these are seeming opposites. These are seeming dualities. Only so for the habitual discriminating mind. In a way, until we're awake, we live in a binary universe. The discriminating mind is binary. It knows that this is a cup because it's not something else. We know via contrast. Experience is comparison. Everything is referred back to something else for ordinary, for habitual mind. In other words, we see through, to some degree, what I'm calling a dogma. But that which seems separate, any two things habitual mind can designate is actually an intimacy, is actually entangled. If with discriminating mind we point out two things, horse and block of cheese, those things are actually intimately entangled, intimately related. But for discriminating mind, thankfully, a horse is not a block of cheese. There's an ancient Chinese saying, when yang reaches its fullness, yin arises. Maybe our Western version is, the fool who persists in their folly becomes wise. So the 10,000 separations that discriminating mind makes to our pleasure or displeasure are a gate to the actual. They are expressions of the actual. They're the body of the actual. And as the actual, there is intimacy. Great teacher Mumon said, all things are a single family. And he also said, all things are disconnected. So I want to start with um, conviction.
conviction. To be convinced by someone may not be so good. Yet for our own intelligence to be exercised and to arrive at a conviction is an altogether different thing. When I first started studying Buddhist teaching, I found it uh, offensive. I found it an affront. It was insulting. My illusions were being breached. I was firmly entrenched, in my mind, the virtues of a hedonistic life. Spirituality as a non-matter, as a fantasy, as a kind of fairy game. And my illusions were being breached, and because I didn't invite that, on a conscious level at least, I didn't consent to it, I resented it. Things are holographic in an interesting way. In the different levels of life, they reflect universally. So, for example, whatever threatens our life brings out tooth and claw in its various forms. But to engage spiritual life sincerely is a real threat to the life of delusion, which just as much as a body or a subculture or a nation hungers for sustenance. It seeks to reproduce. The lifeblood of self-centeredness wants to live, and anything that threatens that, tooth and claw. Just think about the times when a teacher was confrontive rather than merely supportive. So true teaching will and Trungpa Rinpoche said, often be, or he might have said always, but true teaching will sometimes be offensive. Especially if we're not hearing it as, oh yeah, those people who do that deluded thing. Yeah, I've heard about them. Those, those kind of practitioners. <laughs> it's really only true teaching when we take it to heart, to this one. That's when it's true teaching. When we abstract it, its import is lost. So true teaching will often be offensive to something in us. What is it in us that is offended? The non-offense, so, so what if you're offended or you're not offended? The real thing of import is when there's offense, what is offended? That's useful. Then offense is a gift. So to what in us is Dharma offensive? To what in you are the Dharma principles crystal clear? This is an equally important question. Something in you that hears the teachings and they ring like a pure bell. So I want to talk about some of the uh, Dharma principles that in my education conviction has been skillful. But none of these principles are the unique discovery of Buddhism. Some guy wrote a book called Buddhist Exceptionalism about how Buddhists love to think that Buddhism is this special thing that no one has ever thought of, the different truths in it. These principles are everywhere. Dharma, meaning truth, is all pervasive or it's not, right? 
So a country song on the radio is a sutra with the right ears, a mall with the right eyes, someone dying in the response of the still living, all the teachings laid bare. So the teachings, in a, in, a, in a way, are just to amplify something. You know, if you've ever seen somebody work a studio mixing board, every frequency in a bandwidth of sound can be isolated and it can be turned up. It can be highlighted. It can be pulled out of the mix and made to ring more clear. That's what teaching is. It's never something you don't know at some level. So we engage, I try to engage the Dharma teachings as a finger pointing to my own heart, to my own life and not as an abstraction. That's, that's when they're valuable. And I think each of these we could spend a very long time exploring and clarifying and you could say to practice the path is for that which is clear to somehow get even more clear. Or for that which is murky to gradually get clear. The same things are encountered and seen, we might say, in a more subtle, a more inclusive way. So the first is impermanence. Everything is going away. Nothing can be held onto. In fact, the mere idea of possession is foolish. Nobody has anything. There's no haver, there's no had, there's just occurrence. And think about all the lust and grasping that goes into acquiring a big fancy house. Well, according to Dogen, that's just a moment or two of mind. It's just experience. Whatever configuration your life is, hell or heaven, is just experience. It never can become more than that. This is the way things are made. This is the universe. It's experience. It's moments of heart. And our relationship to that determines whether this is a life of free-flowing, bright playfulness with an open heart or one of grasping. This, this basic groundlessness that we are apparently born into. So this is true for states of mind, it's true for material objects, it's true for cultures, it's true for lineages, it's definitely true for people. And it's poignant to think all of us, if we value the spiritual life, to reflect that the amount of time left to engage that spiritual life is quickly dwindling. Because it does take physical health, it does take energy. It's very humbling. I had COVID recently. and It's very humbling to see that 
when physical health is compromised to a certain point, all my notions of practice, at least what I conceive of to be, are really stripped away. And we may be carried by the reverberation of the practice we've done, yes. That's exactly why you do it while you have the vitality. But to assume that our deconstruction will be graceful is a fantasy. So we want to make impermanence not a sour bass note that underlies everything, but that which liberates. Look at it from one angle, it's all loss. From another angle, it's a life of pure creativity. There's not a moment of stagnation. And as practitioners, we are consciously turning, well, we include them both. So that takes me to the next principle, which is very easy to become an abstraction, and maybe that's not helpful at all, but to look at it in our own being is important, and that's karma, comma, action. Imagine that there was an immense network of artists sculpting your life, the unknowably vast world and all its influences from all times, molding and conditioning and circumstancing you and our own intentions, thinking patterns, decisions, ways of looking, are responding to that being sculpted, together being what life is. And this looks very different having some realization of not being separate from the universe. And yet we are sculpted beyond forces. We are sculpted by forces way beyond our control, like biological reality. So we have this world and universe that conditions us and we have our response to it. We have the ability to win a free response to that immense network of conditioning factors. This moment's mind has innumerable factors of how it came to be the way it is. But a lot of them have to do with actions that we take unconsciously. The teachings of karma are basically saying, don't believe that your mind, your body, and your actions in the world are a consequence-free zone. You are sculpting your future self if not the culture, if not the universe. You are doing so. This state of mind right now is evidence of that. 
back to creative functioning. Because mind is not a thing, we have great freedom about how we look, how we receive, how we respond to the world. And that's the place that the teachings encourage is the wisest investment of a human being's happiness capital. Did that sentence make sense? Invest your happiness capital in mind, in virtue, because my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the grounds on which I stand. And impermanence and karma are hard to separate from the truth that suffering sucks. It sucks. Feeling trapped by life sucks. Knowing that you're going to lose everything sucks. Feeling like you are not actually free in your decisions sucks. Loving things that you will lose sucks. That feeling in the heart of restlessness that doesn't go away even in the midst of divine beauty of this world sucks. And we know that. And the Dharma keeps presenting this truth because the human world is one of fantasies and mind-made dogma about happiness, such as, if enough people love me, then I'll be happy. If I have enough followers, then I'll be happy. If I have enough money, then I'll be happy. If I get her, if I get him, if I lose her, if I lose him, I'll be happy. Consensus reality, frankly, is one big dogma. It's basically a lie. Now, I'm not saying you can't look closely and find the Dharma in the midst of culture. It's in the radio song, right? You can hear Kendrick Lamar preaching the Dharma if you have the ear for it. But suffering sucks, and we know that, and we don't often take that knowing seriously enough. It's not just that suffering sucks, but that it won't end on its own. It's not going to stop unless we train the mind. We will not be delivered into a pure land just by going through life and not murdering people. Because even the heavenly situation comes apart. There's no ground there either. For karma, it, it's self-replicating. It's like a virus. It updates itself with current cultural fashions, but karma and, and diluted karma about life, it just keeps self-replicating. We pass it to each other. We might pass it to a future version of ourselves. Many, many wise people have come to that intuition. 
Another way to say all of this is that the mind, heart, is the source of liberation and the source of bondage. Material realities, institutions, yes. But the thing to really look at is how unhappy people are even in the midst of abundance. Maybe we think, oh yeah, but in the Nordic countries. <laughs> Universal health care. I don't think so. The next worthy conviction is that effort is necessary, which is related to suffering won't end on its own. And effort is necessary is important to say because it's also fashionable to have fantasies about the spiritual life. Hogan shared with me something a long time ago about a Christian mystic who said that people want cheap grace. Anybody who presents to you a spiritual life, actual deep freedom, that root connection to the universe as easy, as attainable in a weekend, as swallow a pill or drink a potion, or just, it's just awareness, yay, that's bullshit. If it were so easy, we would see the evidence of it. Doesn't mean those things don't have an inkling of truth. It doesn't mean that that's not helpful at the right time. But effort is necessary. And unless they were all foolish, some people like to think, well, that was just this cultural thing, especially patriarchal men and testosterone. There's nothing better to do. So they just meditated all day and lived in caves because they didn't know how to relate. And it's really misogyny and <laughs> all these modern social ideas, basically looking at people who've given themselves 110% to this beautiful contemplative life as foolish, as somehow, no, we kind of got it figured out. And it, it maybe it's, it's helpful to look at how patriarchy and misogyny and culture has compromised or shaped spiritual path. Yes, but I think a worthwhile conviction is that there is no cheap grace. This moment is the only entrance. Now, why would you even need to say anything? Other, what, what, what else would the entrance be if it wasn't this moment? I'm not even sure why I wrote that down as a conviction. But there is the sense that this is going to happen in the future. My true depth, my true connection with myself is going to happen later. It's like we're deferring it. It took me a while to discover the way I was ungenerous with my energy, the way I, I was trying to articulate earlier. We begrudge, our, we begrudge the moment our energy holding out for the good thing, holding out for the moment that's finally worth fully being here with our whole self. But this is the only moment. 
It seems to change shape, but this is the only moment. This is the only entrance to the Dharma. Now, is just being here in this moment the Dharma? No. Another bad cultural fad. All the time, people, through different forms of intensity, like working out and sex and whatever, come fully into the present moment. That's not the fullness of the spiritual path, obviously. Maybe a better way to say it is not just that this moment is the only entrance, but this moment, this body, the one that has a belly ache, the one that is fatigued, the one that has creaky joints, this body is the perfect and actually ideal path moment. That's the thing worthy of being convinced by. Again, you know that fantasy of, well, I just, nah, not this period. I'm kind of just going to coast. I'm just going to daydream a little bit or do one of those little zazen naps. Because I just don't, I just, I'm too fill in the blank. And that can be a narrative we catch and that can be subliminal. Our tradition, and maybe, all spiritual paths that have developed in fullness have confidence in Buddha nature. They might not call it that. The sense that actually this is luminous. Actually this is free. And that what we take ourselves to be is just some kind of impossible mistaken identity. We've mistaken a wave for the ocean. And that what's really going on is free play of life energy. What's really going on is just a profound gift of wakefulness. Absolutely nothing amiss. And as a conviction, this is practicable because the masters have said, it's in you. It is in you without exception. And all we need to be concerned with is what is covering that up. Another way of saying is be convinced that your capacity as actually being Buddha nature is to take off the mask of being something other than that. Because we can't actually experience the self that is not free, what's there? What's, what's the actual situation?
Conviction in lineage, methods, and teacher is a good thing. And one can basically trust their affinities, although we have times where we, we need to check things out and see, is it actually, does it actually resonate? Is it useful given my disposition? A very uh, modern ability to do so, but nonetheless. People have taken these principles to heart. They have put them into practice and have had a meaningful, tangible, observable change of heart, meaning you can observe it. And we, we should try. We should look at people who've done this for a while and say, what happened to them? Or is there something I see there that gives me some confidence that there was something that has happened? There's something, something has been brought forth by this tradition or by such and such a teacher. Tricky thing is our judgy mind either refuses to see it or our adulation mind believes it's there when it might not be. But there's a way in which we can be, we really can be touched. Our faith is sparked. We know with a different part of ourselves. So conviction in lineage is the alchemy has long been undertaken before Buddhism. This is just a particular compassionate institutional formulation of this. This alchemy has long been undertaken. How to do it is well refined. Right? You can't encounter something novel, I'm sorry to say. That's bad news for the part of us that likes to feel special, but it's good news when it comes to faith and lineage. You can't encounter something novel because tens of thousands of people have done this process this with their teacher and figured out how to respond. And so the precious mirror Samadhi says, now you have it, preserve it well. I have a teacher who says, loves to say, conviction makes you a convict. It's not too difficult to observe that in the people who we think are wrong about things. Those people who have the wrong idea, we're convinced that they have the wrong idea and therefore we're both locked up. Conviction makes you a conflict, convict. But what if there's humility flowing in parallel? What if there's a way to a space to hold these principles within. Not knowing is an element of what we're up to. Can you practice not knowing? 
We can hold the convictions lightly. Isn't spiritual life deeper than any idea, any, any approach, any system? Isn't the world, the universe, deeper and larger than any idea, even these ideas? Can this vast, wide world be encapsulated in any notion, any view? Back to the, the bamboo tube. Even if I recognize the tube, I put down the tube, the sky is vast. And how much do we actually know? If our existential situation is that this moment is what is tangible, if you could even say that, is tangibly present, what does that say about how much we feel we know? Scientists say that something like 98% of the universe is dark matter, which they're not quite sure what that is. The right life has not been authoritatively decided, has it? Who's the authority on a life being right? The right moment. The right experience. The right path. Not knowing Maybe we could say it's not needing to know. That's something we can work with, not needing to know. We don't need understanding. To do this practice. And even some sense of I know how to do the method is probably going to slip out of your hands too. And that's not a bad thing. We don't need to understand. We don't need to have a position about how we're doing. We don't need to succeed. Who said we need to succeed and who would tell us whether we did or not? In the vast sky, what, what, what would the standard be of succeeding spiritual life or succeeding the Dharma, succeeding at life. And we don't even need an aspiration towards an ideal in the moment of practice, especially in session. We're just immerse, immersing, just staying nestled in this unbroken moment. bringing everything to that without needing to grasp or make it without deciding it's the wrong moment to nestle into. 
an unlearning of Zen training might be that thoughts are a very thin simulacrum of knowledge. Thoughts pose as authoritative representations of the thought about, but they're just posers. We think about going into the zendo because we have an idea that I'm, I'm tired, and a thought feeling poses as that's going to feel awful. But that posing thought feeling actually has nothing to do with the actual nowness of being the zendo, which will only arise when it happens, and it's unrepeatably unique, like a snowflake. It's not static, like a river. Thoughts are posers. To embrace that really helps our meditation. There's a time when we use the mind, of course, but to really recognize its limits. Thoughts never directly touch the thought about. They're never really connected with it. And related is who knows how other people are doing? From where did the certainty come that other people are doing it wrong? And so we don't have to judge. There's a time for discernment, yes. But generally, especially in the thick of practice, as things start to cook, as we encounter our agitation, generally judgment is just the bamboo tube. We look at somebody through a very narrow lens, whether that's this somebody or somebody we feel is separate from us. An old venerable practice to antidote judging others, and maybe even deeper than just antidote judging, is to see everyone as a Buddha. Take our tendency to project onto people, ooh, he's really, he's really Zen. And that guy didn't have it. Whatever aversion is. Take that, use that tendency to project and just imagine everyone's got it. Everyone's got it. Everyone is the universe just being itself. There's no place for judgment to land. There's something to be said for an intentional forgetting as a leaning into not knowing. If we have a practice experience and that becomes a new beam in our identity structure, it's almost better if it hadn't happened. Dogen Zenji said, moment by moment, body and mind appear and disappear without abiding. 
moment by moment, body and mind appear and disappear without abiding. So there's no person who had an insight. It wouldn't be desirable for there to be so because the Dharma is moment by moment. Body and mind appear and disappear without abiding. Yet, Dogen Zenji says, the power of practice always matures. So we forget the thoughts about what we've been through, what we've experienced. But the richness, the energy, the ways we were truly touched are not something we have to worry about losing. Moment by moment, body and mind appear and disappear without abiding, yet the power of practice always matures. So for just a few moments now, see what it's like just to let, just let your mind fizzle out into space. Just letting thoughts and perceptions and images permeate, dissolve into the space of the room like a sugar cube in water. And what's it like to not have any fixation and yet there's engagement Engagement without fixation. In the space of no fixation, say to yourself, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe try, I'm not sure. This is a beautiful practice anytime the mind has convicted itself around it's going this way or it's going that way. I don't know how my practice is going. And just feel how wide open, how benevolent that is. I'll close with a, a short poem. The unborn nature of reality does not deny occurrence. It only denies birth. It does not deny appearance. It only denies thingness. 
the unfolding of appearance has never actually implied even an iota of separative self. Self and other, apprehender and apprehended are just a bit of mistaken inference. Look into it carefully and you will discover the intangible magic of appearing never strays from wisdom's bright openness, just like dreams in the nighttime mind. The intangible magic of appearing never strays from bright openness, just like dreams never stray from the nighttime mind. While this is all a true description, true as far as conceptual language structure can make it, it matters not one whit unless we realize it, making it real in body, mind, heart, and perceiving. The path exists for this purpose and no other. Body longs for the love known at the dawn of wisdom, a love known in and as life when wisdom dawns. Mind longs for the silence at the end of confusion. Feeling longs for the tenderness and simplicity when ego-centeredness ends. Be ever so careful how you shape the longing that is your life. Be ever so careful how you shape the longing that is your life. Ordinary longing crafts death from living. Spiritual longing makes even greater life from death. Thank you for your practice. I delight in this endeavor with you, truly.